This is the word of the Lord. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel... Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. This is God's word. Well, anyone uh, who has ever experienced an act of betrayal would know that it is one of the more bitter pills to swallow in this life. Betrayal could be anything from perhaps the betrayal of faithfulness within a marriage, where that marriage uh, fidelity is broken as one spouse or partner commits adultery, or it could be the betrayal of trust within a friendship or within a business relationship or within a family where someone breaches that trust. If you've been on the receiving end of someone breaking that intimate trust you had, then it hurts. Being betrayed hurts. And here in our passage, we see what is arguably the greatest act of betrayal, for this is the one moment in all of human history where an innocent man is betrayed. This is the one time where it's not two sinners betraying one another, but actually an innocent man being betrayed. That is Jesus. And what is outrageously comforting that we will see in this passage is how God uses this act of betrayal to bring about good and glorious purposes. God uses the most wicked and most evil of acts to bring about the greatest good the world has ever seen and will ever see. Now, for a bit of context, we've just gone through Jesus washing the disciples' feet, this beautiful passage where Jesus uh, literally gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. And we saw how that refers to the spiritual cleansing that those who trust in Jesus receive as Christ's finished work of atonement on the cross, as his blood that is poured out is able to cleanse 
the most wretched and most vile of sinners completely so that they are spotless. And Jesus washing their feet points to this act of cleansing. Not only that, but it points to the means by which that cleansing would come about, namely through humiliation. So Jesus has to undertake a humiliating task of washing feet. This is a lowly task of a slave. And Jesus must do that, which points to the fact that he as the son of God must be humiliated on the cross in a lowly, horrific act in order for that cleansing that you and I who have trusted in Jesus Christ would receive. And then after this, Jesus instructs the disciples that they are to follow this example of humble service. They are to follow this example of humble service that he has just done. Later on next week, we'll get to how Jesus says that the disciples must love one another just as he has loved them. We saw particularly how Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus loved Judas by washing his feet, the one whom, as we will see today, is the very one who will betray Jesus. Now, as Jesus gives this example and instruction for us to follow, he is quick to clarify among the disciples that not everyone is truly clean. In verse 10, he references this. We see it again in verse 18 from the start of our passage. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus is speaking to the 12. He says, I'm not giving this example to all of you in one sense, because there is one of you who is unclean and I know who it is. Now, as Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. There are really two ways that we could read this. One, he could mean that he's referring to his sovereign election. That is that he has chosen those whom are his to come to him. And so he could be saying, to the 12, well, I know whom I have chosen, and Judas is not one of them. Or equally, it could be that he is actually referring to simply his sovereign knowledge over the 12, that he knows who he has chosen. And so of the 12 that he has chosen, it's no surprise to him that one is a betrayer because he knows all of those whom he has chosen. Now, either way we look at that, what is clear is that Jesus knows exactly who are his and he knows exactly who is going to betray him. That's what is abundantly clear. Now, while it is clear to Jesus, it is very unclear to the disciples. I find this fascinating. They have no idea who the traitor is. They all look the same. Notice in verse 21, Jesus is troubled in his spirit, and he says to them, one of you is going to betray me. In verse 22, we read that They're uncertain. The disciples are uncertain. That's basically a kind way of saying they're dumbfounded. They're bewildered. They have no idea who the betrayer is. Now, even after they go through this subtle, though I kind of think there's 12 of them there. It's dinner. Surely everyone is seeing what's going on. So Peter asks John. John is the disciple, I believe, who is referred to as the one loved. He's not using that title. You will have noticed uh, that John never refers to himself in the first name, but rather as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's more of a, a humble title rather than an arrogant one of look who Jesus loves the best. No, it's a, 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 a title that we can all have as those who have trust in Jesus. Jesus loves us. So John is actually using a humble way of not using his name, but just saying, I'm just another disciple that Jesus loves. So Peter asks John to ask Jesus, who's the betrayer? Who's the one? And Jesus says, well, it's the one that 
I give this morsel of bread too. He gives the morsel of bread to Judas. He then says to Judas, what you must do, go and do it. And then even after that, and surely this happened in front of everyone, it's not like they were having eight different conversations. Everyone was probably focused upon Jesus. Even after that, the disciples don't know what's going on. They think, oh, well, maybe, the, maybe Judas has gone to, to pick up the bill or to prepare a feast. Maybe he's gone on admin. They're not sure. The disciples are absolutely clueless. But Jesus has known all along that Judas would betray him. And I want to, before we then come into the meat of our passage, which is actually going to be verses 18 to 20, before we get to that, I just want to identify three things about this scene of Jesus knowing exactly who was going to betray him. All the while, the disciples have no idea who it is. So there are three things I want to briefly identify. Number one, Judas looked just like any other disciple. Judas didn't have, he didn't wear a red cape or horns. He didn't appear to be a disciple. He looked just like any other disciple. That's why the disciples didn't know who it was. Judas went on the same mission trips. He apparently cast out demons as well. He heard the same stories. He lived with them. He heard the same sermons that Jesus gave. He even kept their money, we see. This means he's a trusted disciple. He was their treasurer in in a sense. And so one thing that we can conclude from this is that religious activity is not the same thing as saving faith. Religious activity is not the same thing as saving faith. You might do a whole heap of things in a church environment and you may not belong to Christ. You may have the heart of a betrayer. And this should strike a healthy fear within us. We may appear to offer the same love and devotion as anyone else. We might do a lot of Christian things, but religious activity is not the same thing as saving faith. Saving faith will ultimately bear fruits of utter allegiance and adoration to Jesus Christ so that when that time comes that you might be tempted to betray him, you would rather die than dishonor or betray your Lord. Religious activity is not the same thing as saving faith. Second thing to point out, Judas lived in deception. He not only deceived others, but he lived in self-deception. Judas invested three years of discipleship in following Jesus. Now, this wasn't like a university degree where you give about 10 hours of your week to go somewhere. This is a whole life. I mean, he traveled with them. You you slept together. Judas wanted to appear just as one of the 12. But there was darkness within Judas's soul. John's comment, if you notice at the end of verse 30, after Judas goes out and John says it was night, that's both referring to the fact that it was night, but it's also symbolic. After Judas rejects that final offer from Jesus of receiving the bread and he goes out to betray Jesus, John refers to that being deep darkness. It was night. It's symbolic of the darkness that engulfed the soul of Judas. Now, this darkness didn't just happen overnight. It's not like Judas was full of light and then betrayed Jesus and then all of a sudden he's full of darkness. That darkness must have been there. Judas had a dark soul and yet he deceived others and he deceived himself into thinking that he had light. 
Now, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 6. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually speaks of this where he talks about what we treasure and what we value. And he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of goodness, which is him basically saying, if your heart has been transformed, if your heart has been transformed by Christ so that you now long for good things, then you'll fill your life with goodness. You will desire good things. But then Jesus says, if your eye is bad, if your eye is actually bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is saying, if you deceive yourself into thinking that you have light, when really you have darkness, that is utter darkness. You're living in absolute deception. Judas tried to appear as though he loved light. He tried to appear as though he wanted light, but really he loved darkness. He loved darkness as with any of us do in our natural state because darkness doesn't expose our sinful desires. If it was dark in this room, we couldn't see what everyone is doing. We love darkness in our sinful state because we can remain in sin. We can appear as though we have good intentions. The light of Christ, however, exposes sinful desires. Nothing is hidden. Everything is laid bare before the light of Christ. And those who have had that penetrating light shine into the very depths of their soul know how painful it is to have our sin brought to the surface, but then how glorious it is to then in the light of Christ see that that sin has been nailed to the cross, that we have been cleansed by that light shining into our hearts. Judas, however, lived in deception. The last thing very simply that I want to identify of this reality of the disciples not knowing who the betrayer was and yet Jesus knowing all along is very simply that Jesus loved Judas. This is an astounding reality. Jesus loved Judas. The disciples were obviously completely unaware of who the betrayer was because Jesus treated Judas just like anyone else. He didn't leave him on the benches when they all went out on their mission. He didn't, you know, skip over him at mealtime. He treated him with the same love as any of the other disciples. We see in verse 26 that Jesus offers Judas a morsel of bread. Now, this is an intimate gesture. It's a very common gesture from, say, the host of a, a dinner party to actually offer a morsel of bread in front of anyone else. It's a, it's a token of love and friendship. And Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him and he still offers this last token of love, this last good gesture to Judas, even though he knows Judas is going to send him to a horrific death. This is what it means to love our enemies, our Lord Jesus, loving Judas. Now, after Jesus offers this morsel, we read in verse 27 that, Satan entered into him. This is after Judas is uh, heading off to betray Jesus. Satan enters into Judas. Now, again, Judas at this point has darkness dwelling within him. It's not like this changed overnight. But what we clearly see is that the darkness is intensified as Satan takes up residence within Judas. 
And it should be said that those of us who have received that cleansing that we saw last week in John 13, those of us who have truly been bathed in Christ, the devil cannot make his home amongst those who have the spirit dwelling within them. The devil may shoot darts, but they are really futile attempts to corrupt what is incorruptible, namely the Holy Spirit dwelling within believers. But for Judas, who remains unclean, as Jesus identifies, the devil finds a home amongst the uncleanness. Now, the big question that we're going to camp out on is in verse 18 of of why Jesus, who is all-knowing, he is God in the flesh, why would Jesus, of the 12 people, he had his pick from as many people in Israel as he wanted, why would he pick someone who is going to then betray him? Why would all-knowing Jesus pick a betrayer? And here we come back to verse 18. Verse 18 is where Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen, but... Now, it's not as clear in the ESV, but it should be, but this is so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Lifting his heel against me is a phrase that comes from a a horse uh, violently and without expectancy uh, kicking someone in the back. It's, It's something that no one would want. Perhaps a modern expression is basically saying being stabbed in the back by a friend. And so this is, of course, Jesus identifying that there is a scripture in Psalm 41, which we will look at, that says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He has stabbed me in the back. So Jesus chose Judas, whom he knew would betray him, to fulfill what had been written in Holy Scripture hundreds of years earlier. Amazingly, hundreds of years earlier. Now, as with many other times, Jesus alludes to other parts of his scriptures. There is more than meets the eye. Jesus, of course, isn't treating his own scriptures like a salad bar, as so many others do, where he's thinking, well, this scripture fits my purposes. I'm fulfilling this. I won't fulfill that. No, there is deep meaning to the reason why he refers to this very scripture and this very psalm. The scripture Jesus refers to again is in Psalm 41. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 41. What's interesting about Psalm 41 is that I think if you were to look at Psalm 41 in its own context, and if Jesus never referred to it in the New Testament, I don't think you would immediately see any sort of connection between what was happening here with Jesus and this psalm. We can see it in light of what Jesus has identified, but on surface level, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot connecting this to Jesus being betrayed by Judas. But there are treasures to be dug up here when we look closely at this psalm. There are wonderful treasures to be dug up, and I want to demonstrate just two key themes of this psalm that point us to the work of Jesus Christ. Not simply because of this one verse in Psalm 41, 9, but because of the context of the psalm and these themes that are buried within there as we dig them up, they point us to the wonderful work of Christ in his life, death and resurrection. And the first thing to note that should be said is that this is not entirely a messianic psalm. A a messianic psalm, we get the word Messiah, which means anointed one, the name Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. 
Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And a messianic psalm is a psalm that is pointing to the Messiah, that is pointing to the Christ. Think of Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from on the cross. That's a, a messianic psalm where it is an, another person writing it, namely David, and yet it's pointing to someone else, the Messiah. We know that this psalm is not absolutely a messianic psalm because verse 4 speaks of David sinning. But as what tends to happen in other psalms is that there is an aspect of the psalm that shows the reality for the psalmist in uh, the fullest sense of fallen humanity where they slip up into sin and yet it's also pointing to this hope of humanity which comes by the Messiah who is sinless. So let's look at this first aspect of this psalm that shows us or points us to the work of Christ. The first aspect is notice that the psalmist suffers both at the hands of enemies and at the hands of a close friend. So even from verse 5 of the psalm, David here says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? That's his enemies saying, just hurry up and die. And then verse 6, and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Now, these are some enemies. I don't know if any of us actually has someone who would genuinely want us dead, but this is what was happening for David. He has enemies that really are after his blood. David suffered much at the hands of enemies. I mean, he had to flee Jerusalem many times. But perhaps what was worse is when his close companions, even his own family, betrayed him. You might remember the story we read in 2 Samuel, particularly in chapter 15, where David's own son Absalom ends up conspiring against him to try and take the throne and then not only Absalom, when he conspires against him, but Ahithophel, who was a counselor of David, a trusted friend, also joins in with the conspiracy to try and take down David. And David has to flee Jerusalem. And this is likely who David is referring to here in verse 9, which Jesus quotes from when he says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, Jesus follows the same path of King David in the sense of living a life of rejection and betrayal. Jesus is constantly rejected by his very own people, his very people that he came to. And what do they do? They cry out for him to be crucified. But not only this, Jesus is rejected by a close friend. Again, Judas spent three years of intimate fellowship with Jesus. Intimate Fellowship, they shared meals together. We just saw last week that Jesus washed Judas's feet. That's a very intimate thing to happen, and yet Judas betrays him. And make no mistake, even though Jesus is fully God, he felt every bit of the suffering associated with being betrayed by a close friend. That's why in verse 21, we read, Jesus is troubled in spirit. That word for troubled, is, it's like your insides being stirred up. It's like when you're so anxious over something that it feels like someone is twisting your insides. And that's what's happening for Jesus here. He is troubled in his spirit as he knows that his betrayer is there and is about to betray him. Jesus feels every bit 
of this suffering, just as we who hope in Christ, who have the hope of salvation, just as we still feel the sting of those who might betray us. We're not living on a cloud as though we're never going to face negative emotions again. No, if anything, we who trust in Christ feel the fullness of those emotions. We would feel the fullness of the betrayal of an unfaithful spouse. We would feel the fullness of the emotions of the betrayal of a family member who maybe drags your name through the mud or takes your love and shoves it into the dirt and then back into your face. We would feel the hurt that comes with that. Jesus feels the hurt that comes as his dear friend betrays him and hands him over to a shameful and humiliating death. And we see that in the life of David as he is betrayed. We clearly see this in the life of Jesus. But here is where we come to the hope. So notice even in this psalm, there is hope. Look particularly at verses 11 and 12. David says, But by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Now that's hope. I mean, David has people after his life They want him dead, and he says, but hang on, I know Yahweh, I know you, oh my God, you will uphold me. My enemies will not shout in triumph over me. So here is the second aspect of this psalm that points us to the work of Christ. Here's where we get into the details. The hope of the psalmist was that God would raise up the king and bring justice. Here is where we see the way God uses the most evil act of betrayal to bring about glorious good. We see it in the hope of the psalmist being that God would raise up the king and bring justice. So let's look at verses 8 to 10 of the psalm. Verse 8 describes the words of the enemies of David who say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Now this is a call for the death of the king. This is David's enemies pronouncing a hit on him that he would die and not be resurrected. That's literally the word there in verse 8 when David says, they say that I will not be raised up. That is, I will not be resurrected. And then we see the verse that we have quoted by Jesus, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel up against me. And then verse 10, the hope But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now, this is the same word in verse 8 that particularly the Greek Old Testament translates with the word resurrect. That is David saying, but you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and resurrect me that I may repay them. David is asking that Yahweh would resurrect him so that justice would come. We see this in verses 11 and 12. David then says, by this, that is by you raising me up, I know that you delight in me and my enemy will not shout in triumph over me and eventually you will set me in your presence forever. Here is where we begin to see the thrust of this psalm taking us away from David to the better David, that is to Jesus. So notice that the hope in the psalm is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would raise up the king so that evil would be repaid with justice 
and then the king would be set in the presence of Yahweh forever, for eternity. In the midst of the evil of this world that constantly betrays God's good standard, the hope of humanity, our hope, is that God would deal with this evil in some way, and it is all centered upon his anointed one, his king. This is the reality for us. We're not grappling with evil that is not associated with sin and the cross. Here is the answer, God's own and final answer to the greatest problem in humanity, and it is all centered upon our sin paid for in the cross. So we come to the cross of Christ, and at the cross of Christ, we see the triumph over evil that is actually anticipated in this psalm. We see the triumph over evil, where the psalmist says, Yahweh, raise up your king so that justice would come. But there is a a plot twist in this storyline that we have to understand before we rejoice in God dealing with evil. There's something that we have to understand, and that is that you and I are not innocent victims in this battle of good and evil as though we're standing on the sideline just waiting for God to deal with evil and we're there clapping along waiting for Him to do it so that we can all be saved. No, no, no. What we must understand is that you and I, in our natural state, are evil. We are rebellious in our hearts. We are sinful by nature. Apart from Christ's cleansing work, we have a heart of betrayal, where we constantly betray God's good standard. We constantly go against His way. That is us. So if we want to cry out for evil to be dealt with, then we must be crying out for the punishment of our very selves. We must be crying out for punishment of our evil. And here is the wonder of the cross. This is just amazing, that at the cross, God deals with our evil, not someone else's evil, but our evil, everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ, He deals with our evil by punishing it in Christ that then also brings about the forgiveness of that very evil because of the work of Christ. And see, here's where at the cross we see how God uses the very sin of man. He uses the evil that is constantly against him. He uses that evil, the very sin of man and the sting of sin, which is death, to then lead his son to a sinner's death, though being without sin. And in that death, in all of that evil forced or directed against God, God uses it to bring about the greatest act of redemption, the greatest good that human history has ever known, where Christ pays the penalty, the full price for the sin of His elect. I mean, the full price, not just 99.9%, but the full price for my sin and yours at the cross. We see this victory in Colossians 2. I'll read this out in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. If we take the New Testament to then shed some more light on this, Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, you who were dead in your trespasses, notice that he's not saying someone else's trespasses or you who were held captive by evil. No, it's your evil, your sin, your trespasses, you and me, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. At the cross, God triumphs over evil. He triumphs over sin putting it to open shame. How is it that that was put to open shame? Why does Paul describe it that way? Well, I think because the evil powers, the same evil powers that we see in Satan engulfing Judas to further on this act of betrayal, the same evil powers that were behind an innocent man being crucified in a horrible way, those evil powers assumed that their plan was successful as the only innocent man who ever lived, the only hope of humanity, is hung there, naked, dead, on a cross. Not only that, but on the Saturday, he is buried in a tomb, and they assume that their plan is successful. They assume, just as David's enemies said, he will not rise again, he will not be resurrected, they assumed that the slaughtering of the Son of God was their victory. But in that slaughtering, here is just the beautiful reality of the gospel, in that slaughtering, the greatest act of redemption that the world has ever seen has come about. At the cross, the recompense or the justice that is hoped for in this psalm that David cries for, raise up the king, that justice may come. We see that in the cross as evildoers like you and I are punished for our sin, and yet God uses the very evil directed against his plan to then bring about the fulfillment of that plan of redemption, to bring about the glory of God in saving wretched sinners like you and I. And so this is part of why Jesus chooses a betrayer. He not only chooses a betrayer to fulfill this specific verse in this psalm, but he also fulfills the greater theme of the psalm where God ultimately triumphs over the evil of this world, which constantly seeks to betray God's good standard. We see the victory there at the cross. Now, as we draw to a close with that background in verse 18, let's briefly look at what Jesus says after this. In verse 19, back in John chapter 13, Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, so then when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That is, we've discussed this before, you may believe that I am the I am. That is, the, the name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh, is the Hebrew word, which is just a, a verb that means I am. It's as if to say, whereas everyone else has a beginning and an end, God just is. He is, he's eternal. And so that's the name of God. Yahweh means I am who I am or I exist. And the way that that would be described in the New Testament is, as I think Tobias preached on this earlier last year, is in ego I, I me, which is the Greek way of saying I am. And here we have I am he. This is undoubtedly Jesus saying all of this has happened so that you would know that I am the I am, so that you would know that I am Yahweh, the very name that David cries out to in Psalm 41. It's like Jesus saying, I am the one that the psalmist spoke of, both when he called upon Yahweh to resurrect the king, and I'm the one who was resurrected. 
That's me. I'm the fulfillment of all of this. And this flows so well into verse 20. If you look at verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is to say, there is such unity between Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who is Jesus in the sense of Jesus being God in the flesh. There's such unity between the Trinitarian God and then those who are sent by that God, you and I, beginning with his apostles, flowing down. There is such unity that a sent one of God, if anyone should receive them, it's as good as receiving the very God who sent them. There is such unity there. This is anticipating the commission that Christ gives to his followers to go into the world. He will say this in John 20, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you to carry on this work of redemption where you proclaim a wonderful Christ and you preach salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's very fitting that this anticipation of the commission which followers of Jesus receive, comes within this theme of betrayal. It's very fitting that it comes within this theme of betrayal because Jesus warned elsewhere that as he sends his disciples out, they would be betrayed. Think of Matthew 24. Remember the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be delivered up to tribulation. Now that word delivered is the exact same word as betrayed. You will be betrayed over to tribulation as i send you out as you go out in a hostile world that hates me you're gonna be betrayed over to tribulation to some degree this is the reality for us as we faithfully make christ known we will be delivered up to tribulation and what is our comfort as we go about this task of faithfully bearing witness what is our comfort as we seek to make christ known It is that the same God who used the evil act of betrayal, the same God who used the evil act of betrayal to bring about glorious redemption is the same God who remains with us to bring about glorious redemption in our own task of making Christ known. He continues this beautiful picture of using the most evil acts in the world to bring about good. He continues that in you and I as we go about our lives faithfully making Christ known. What a glorious reality. I want to finish, that's the preacher's liberty of saying finish a couple of times. This is the last time I want to finish with three applications of how Christ used betrayal for the glory of God and our good. And I want to look at this just briefly in three spheres. In our mission, and then in our suffering, and then in how we respond to other moments of betrayal. So the first aspect of how we uh, understand this beautiful theme of God using evil to bring about good in our mission, that is our evangelistic task, is that we do not play it safe in our evangelistic task. We are not risk-averse people. We don't play it safe by failing to even engage in this task of evangelism, or we don't play it safe by toning down our allegiance to Christ in a society that is hostile to it. We don't tone it down so that we spare ourselves by perhaps changing our language to say things like, well, it's really my faith that 
helps me, well, that's very palatable in a world. No one's going to get offended by that. We don't seek to try to be offensive, but we don't play it safe in the sense of toning down our language. When we forget that God sovereignly used the most evil act of reviling and betrayal to serve his purposes, that's when we tend to play it safe and tone down our allegiance to Christ. We either won't speak of Jesus or we'll speak of him in ways that don't keep the offense of the gospel. And so we must remember that God is totally able to use whatever persecution, whatever hatred that may come from family members or work colleagues, he is totally able to use whatever reviling or whatever shame or mockery may come your way. He's totally able to use it to serve his purpose of glorifying himself and preserving you at the very same time. We see that in this story. Second application of how this comforts us in our own suffering not necessarily suffering in our mission, but suffering in general, a cancer diagnosis, divorce, other broken relationships. What we clearly see in the way God used an evil act of betrayal to bring about glorious redemption is that there is no circumstance beyond God's ability to bring about good from that circumstance. There is no evil or suffering that will come your way that God says, well, my hands are tied. There is nothing beyond his ability to bring about glorious redemption in that. And there is great temptation in the midst of our suffering to succumb to hopelessness. That's the temptation. We succumb to hopelessness. And think about how hopeless things seemed for the disciples. Think about the Saturday after the Friday. Christ is crucified. He's buried in the tomb. Think about how quiet that was on the Saturday for the disciples, thinking we've just wasted these three years. Our Messiah, our Master is dead. What's going to happen? And yet he rose again and he brought about the greatest act of redemption. See, this is how we know that beautiful verse in Romans 8, 28, that God makes all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How do we hold dear to that in our own moments of suffering? We look at the greatest act of suffering and how God used that to bring about good and his glory. And so we trust that in our own circumstances of suffering. We don't need to see the good in that moment. We simply need to look to the God who brings about the good in his timing. And that is our comfort. And lastly, think about how we respond in our own moments of betrayal. What is an act of betrayal? It's, it's where you trusted someone who turned out to be untrustworthy. They broke that trust. And probably all of us at some point have experienced that in some way whether it is a, a broken relationship or a business fracture, whatever it is, people will betray us. And the temptation when someone breaks your trust is to succumb to bitterness and to believe that no one is trustworthy. That's the temptation to hold on to bitterness. But one thing that we are reminded of in this passage is that while Judas changed from his original conviction, though he signed on to his apprenticeship that he will follow Jesus, and he changed from that conviction to show his true heart, we see that Jesus never changes in his commitment to his disciples. He is the unchanging God. He never changes. He never betrays. 
And so when we face acts of betrayal in this life, whether people lie to us, whether they manipulate and use us, our comfort and our foundation is that we trust in a trustworthy God who never changes. That is where our hope lies. That's what stops us from succumbing to bitterness. This is why Paul could say in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never take justice into your own hands. Do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm convinced the only way you can respond in that way with a peaceful desire to continue doing good rather than taking matters into your own hands, the only way you can actually respond to that is if you truly believe that God is trustworthy. That's the only way you can do it. It's a fool's errand to try to live with that kind of peace without believing in a God that has shown himself to be utterly trustworthy. That's the only way so that when people do break your trust, when they revile you, you know, my God never changes. He is for me. He will sustain me. He will bring this about for good in some way. These light and momentary afflictions are light and momentary that he is working together for an eternal weight of glory. So we do not look to what is seen, but what is unseen.